Peace to this. Peace be with you. Um, welcome to the Naked Truth. We are going to pick up where we left off in the book of uh, Luke. It's Saturday night. Well, actually, I guess it's Sunday. Uh, the book of Luke. We made it to chapter 12. If you want to read along with me, let's begin with verse 1. In the meantime, when an innumerable multitude of people had gathered together so that they trampled one another, he began to say to his disciples, first of all, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. So Jesus is the person who the people are crowding around to get close to. And Jesus has some words of advice, and he's giving it. And the advice is regarding looking out for hypocrites. And he's saying that that hypocrisy is the part of the mix that the religious people are going to add. That's who the Pharisees are. That's who Jesus is warning about. So in a nutshell, he's saying, just like a tiny bit of leaven, yeast or baking powder, salt or whipped eggs can add lift to your recipe for making some sort of bread or dough in the same way the small amount of lies and hypocrisy that religion can add to the mix is enough to overtake your whole belief system and maybe even derail your trip to seeking God. Verse 2, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed, nor hidden that will not be known. So Jesus is saying that the secrecy, it seems to me, is um, what religion, bad religion, will do and use to keep people fooled. And, but that, that same bad religion has to be aware of the light, uh, shedding light on the darkness that is their actual affliction. Verse 3, therefore, whatever you've spoken in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you've spoken in your ear in inner rooms will be proclaimed on the housetops. So again, Jesus is making it clear that even though some things seem like they're top secret or highly confidential, they have a way of uh, being found out, the truth that is. And sometimes it's not pretty. Um, verse 4, and I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. So Jesus is now, it seems, uh, addressing the fact that there's dangers involved with um, people who are Christians, followers, and the faith of the faith, and dangers from the outside of people actually seeking uh, their lives or our lives, as you should say, um, in the sense that he's saying. Uh, but he's he's more, he's letting us know to beware, but not to be afraid that there is that danger out there. But the danger that they pose isn't a danger to our souls. Verse five: But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after he's killed, has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. So here's an instance where Jesus is using the word hell. And um, it's noteworthy because we know in the same Gospel of Luke, um, I refer to it often, um, of the um, instance where two people pass away and, and Jesus recounts them, that incident when it happens because they pass away at the same time. And uh, Jesus talks about when they both die, that neither of them wake up in or arrive in, make an appearance in heaven or in hell by name, and neither one either comes in contact with God or the devil by name. Um, so it, I find that noteworthy because that seems to contradict what religion leads people to believe, even based on things out of the Bible, like uh, be, be absent from your flesh, to be present with the Lord. Um, that's not necessarily the way it's described when Jesus talks about it. So it's one of those instances, another one of those instances, where as 
red letter Christians, we have to, I would say, choose to believe, lean in on, trust in, stand on what it is Jesus has to say if you have to decide since there are things, yet again, that contradict what Jesus said about life, death, and hereafter. One last thing, hell in this verse, yeah, in this verse, is being translated to the English word hell were from the word Gehenna in um, Hebrew. So um, that's not always the case. Sometimes hell is translated from other words. <clears throat> Excuse me. It makes me kind of curious about um, what it be translated to um, in the passage I, that came to mind earlier, but I remember now the word Jesus used when he talks about it, then, and then we'll move on, is Hades, when he talks about the one man, the rich man, and Lazarus, Lazarus wakes up basically on the other side, but he's alive now on the other side, um, in a place that's described as, but not named, paradise, but it's also not called heaven either, and Lazarus uh, um, so that's where Lazarus wakes up and, his, and he's a blissfully unaware it seems of the rich man who wakes up in flames and in torments but not in a place called hell but it's called Hades by Jesus in that trans uh, in, the, in that um, passage in that verse um, so it's just interesting and this is such a long chapter in itself already and we've gone over that chapter and reading about uh, reincarnation hereafter and all of that already. So I won't delay on it any further. But um, just so you have the understanding, some preachers will write off hell as always being referred to as a trash heap or uh, Gehenna as it's known uh, by the people there. Basically the city dump. Um, but that's not always what it's being referred to when we have to talk about it when Jesus uses it. Because if it's in the case where Jesus said, where the where their worm will not die, and the fire is not quenched, and the worm does not die, um, that place isn't the same place it used to be. So that couldn't be what Jesus was referring to when he uses it in those instances. Having said all that, now getting back to where we left off, um, verse, let's see, five, verse 5, I believe we left off that, uh, yeah, so that was verse 5, uh, that the fear that we have to have, the reverence that we need to exercise is the fear toward God Almighty, who has the power to destroy both body and soul, I think it's the, uh, is the message that's trying to be conveyed by those verses. Verse 6. Are not five sparrows sold for two copper coins, and yet and not one of them is forgotten before God? So Jesus is saying, it seems to me, um, that look at even the birds, the sparrows, those tiny little birds, um, they even have value uh, in the eyes of man to the point that uh, when they, uh, if you have something to sell, you can sell them for some for a few coins, for a few minutes, for a few pennies. Um, but even then, that catches God's eye. Um, but He's saying, verse, um, with the, to continue the thought, verse um, seven. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear; therefore, you have more value. And many sparrows. So that's good news for us, not so good news for the chickens and things, that um, we're worth so much more than them, it seems, in the big picture and grand scheme of things. But um, we do so much more damage to everything that exists, exists, it seems, than the chickens and things do. The animals don't hate and kill and lynch each other the way humans do. Um, for generations, and yet uh, the animals seem to have less value. Um, verse, um, but I guess the thing about our hairs being numbered, 
I guess that's an interesting coincidence that numbers are used for things like hair color. Um, 4B and uh, use the artificial colors, 104s and 103s for light ones. It's interesting, the ones and twos for dark. It's interesting that there's biblical allusions there, even in hair color. Verse 8, also I say to you, whoever confesses me before men, him the Son of Man will also, him the Son of Man also will confess before the angels of God. So Jesus says it's letting us know there, <clears throat> excuse me, in being faithful to professing our faith, not being a Bible thumper, but actually knowing the gospel and not just talking it, but walking it, living it, doing it, keeping it, um, that that will show our, our actual Christianity and show our allegiance to Christ, not pledging allegiance like people, like a nation that tells you it's God's being a Christian will tell you it's righteous to do, but actually contradicts what Jesus himself tells us not to do, to swear oaths at all. That's what a pledge is. And yet, you see, we're held in high esteem by the thumpers. Um, anyway, verse 8. Also, I say to you, whoever says, but it's about the part about not denying our faith. Verse 9, when he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. So Jesus is saying, if you don't walk the walk and not just talk the talk, if you don't have faith and show it in our actions, uh, then there'll come a time, since that's sort of the litmus test to show that we're Christians, there'll come a time when uh, basically it's thought of as judgment day in plain English. Um, that last day comes and it comes to everyone on their different day uh, where you wake up on the other side um, but not in the flesh. And uh, when it comes, that moment of truth comes where uh, you hope that the Savior will know you just like you remember the Savior, you remember being baptized, you remember hearing about Jesus, um, you remember saying, going to a place that says it's Christian, um, but as far as if it's actually done or said or lived up to the things that Jesus actually says, that you don't remember because that's not actually anything in practice, then that's, that's going to show that's that moment of truth, and when it shows, that's not a good thing because, um, Jesus is saying it's gonna, you're going to end up being denied because um, he's not going to know you just because you, you actually don't know him either. You've just been using that label sliding under the umbrella. Not you specifically, God forbid you. Verse 10, and anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But to him who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven. So, this is something, one of the only other uh, organizations, churches, I guess we can call it, um, um, administrations, I guess. Maybe that's not the word, since it's a religious organization. Um, we'll just go with churches. And one of the um, only other ones that I know that uses the chapter by chapter and verse by verse method of going over the Bible, um, they'll use this passage, these passages like this, to sort of distort, not even sort of, outright distort what it actually means. They'll immediately hijack it and point it toward Antichrist and, um, and um, all sorts of theories about what the elect can face um, in those end times, and they won't be the only ones that can even commit this sin. I don't think that's what it's saying at all. So let's take it bit by bit. So verse 10, anyone who speaks the word against the Son of Man, meaning Jesus is saying people can say all sorts of things flippantly or intentionally against Jesus. Um, you know, even using the Lord's name in vain or using even harsher sounding curse words. Um, Jesus is saying, However they do it, however they use, however we as humanity uses his name in the wrong way. 
it'll be forgivable. It's entirely forgivable. It will be forgiven. Um, but what won't be forgiven is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And I think what Jesus is saying there is that in one sense, uh, the other religions that religion, church, organization that does a chapter by chapter and verse by verse, verse by verse, chapter by chapter approach to the Bible and its reading of it, one of the um, things that it's um, right about is that I think part of that applies to the elect, the disciples, the ones whose accounts of what Jesus said did end up in the Bible, but also ended up in historical documents, scriptures, texts that didn't make it into the Bible. That those are um, those are the ones who were um, more likely to commit the um, unpardonable sin, blaspheming, speaking, saying something against the Holy Spirit because they had the obligation, the responsibility of documenting the Gospels for us for all times since then. Um, maybe depending on if you believe in time travel um, as a reality at some point or not um, for all generations um, period to be able to recount what Jesus actually said give the speech red letters and plain English so that if they blasphemed against that in documenting what it is Jesus said for instance how um, Luke 17 34 talks about homosexuality and yet you see some churches uh, some organizations to try to represent Christianity will intentionally leave that out of their um, preaching that's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit because if we're believers we believe it's the gospels that um, are led by the spirit that have been given by the disciples so if the disciples gave us Luke 17 34 as an example um, then um, not including that in our teachings intentionally overlooking that uh, in our teachings is in a way blaspheming against the Holy Spirit because regardless of how we feel about any particular subject including the LGBT we should go by use as our own litmus test of right and wrong righteousness and wickedness the things that Jesus says so if Jesus tells us one will be taken and the other will be left that means one will be saved and one will not so then we know that the punishment that we call the Old Testament calls for for males who lie with other males and what the same new um, some same sort of things in the New Testament beyond Christianity of other religions in the New Testament um, says about it shouldn't be discounted because Jesus himself addressed this subject and yet you see religious organizations churches will intentionally not teach that and instead it exclude all sorts of souls who fall under the umbrella of the LGBT from um, salvation even though that's not what Jesus teaches at all um, so, um, I don't know, it just, it's interesting to me how religion will do, how religion will hijack the truth, and it be very, very popular, whereas the truth should be sufficient. Um, so, but Jesus is letting us know and letting them know it's not forgivable. Saying things against what he says is one thing. Uh, saying things against what the Holy Spirit has to say, and I, oh, so the other part of that, I believe, is when the disciples gave the accounts of what Jesus had to say, it would have been blasphemy against the Holy Spirit for them to do it. But I think it's also blasphemy against the Holy Spirit for us in a case where we're faced with decisions of right and wrong in our own paths that we cross. And we know that, uh, well, one part of us says that this is okay to do, but we know, and it's only a few examples, but they're significant. Uh, well, we know what it is Jesus has to say about um, any given um, topic. But for instance, the LGBT, but not just that. Other things also that Jesus talks about that seem extreme, but only because of what religion, religion says about them, not because 
They're not right there in black and white or in the case of Jesus bread for us to be able to refer to light reincarnation as we call it in plain English, modern English. So anyway, verse 10, and anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. So that's letting us know it's forgivable. But what's not forgivable is speaking against the Holy Spirit. Verse 11, now, now when they bring you to the synagogues and magistrates and authorities, do not worry about how or what you should answer or what you should say. So this is going back again to what I think is referring to the part about speaking against the Holy Spirit that applies to the disciples and their trials and tribulations and executions and leading to their accounts of the Gospels that did make it into the Bible, but also that didn't. Um, but them specifically, I think, is what's being talked about in verse 11. Um, some preachers preach that that's also when it's talking about in future times since then, when people would encounter um, uh, authorities and things going through religious trials. I think it applied to the disciples since they already went through and gave their, most of them gave their lives for the religious trials they underwent and the testimony they had to Jesus' words, these red letters. So I think it was applying to them for the most part, but again, I think it applies when we come in contact in our own paths with um, instances that uh, contradict what it is Jesus tells us being Christian is actually about. Verse 12, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. So again, that's why I think is applying, to, uh, why we know it applies to, at least in a great part, to what the disciples went through in their recounting of what happened with Jesus as they walked with him and the things that made it into the Bible. Verse, uh, among other examples, verse 13. Then one from the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. So someone from the crowd is, seems to shouting out Jesus, asking Jesus for his judgment in the matter of something civil with his brother. He's requesting division of property with his brother inheritance, specifically, he's saying. Verse 14, but he said to him, man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? So Jesus answered the shout out with, who made me your judge Judy? What makes you think I'm the one to split up property for you? And he takes it further. Verse 15, and he said to them, take heed and beware of covetousness. For one's life does not consist in abundance consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. So Jesus um, first answers his question saying that that's not what I'm come here for, to be a judge of your things. And then he tells, um, ends up the advice with a warning that to be careful about the things, not being distracted by the things that we come across in life, I think is the point of what Jesus is saying. And that if we get too distracted by the different things that we can try and grab and accomplish and achieve in life, we risk falling into covetousness because uh, we're looking at what it is other people value as valuable and might end up trying to chase those different things to our own detriment, God forbid. Um, verse 16 then he spoke a parable to them saying the ground of a certain man, rich man yielded plentifully so the narrator here is letting us know jesus is talking in a parable jesus isn't specifically saying it's a parable the narrator though presumably luke is letting us know it's a parable um and the parable is talking about someone with plenty a rich man Verse 17, and he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no room to store my crops? So the man is so bountiful, his crops are so bountiful, he doesn't have room to store all of his goods like that gospel hymn. You just open up a window that you won't have room for, uh, reflecting on the ability of God to work. So he's got things bountiful in his house. 
verse 18 in the parable he does so he said i will do it i will do this i'll pull down my barns and build greater and there i will store all my crops and my goods so the man's crops are so plenteous that he's going to tell himself what he's going to do is pull down his barns and store uh, and build bigger ones and store his crops and his goods there and verse 19 and i will say to my soul soul you have many goods laid up for many years take your ease eat drink and be merry so it looks like that's where he might have went wrong the message to himself that he's giving to himself to his soul is now's the time to go ahead and relax you achieve so much in life go ahead and sit back and chill verse 20 but god said to him fool this night your soul will be required of you then whose will those things be which you have provided so um it seems in that moment of going ahead and letting his hair down kicking back and relaxing not chasing those things those goods like the man who was asking for his brother to split the goods with him not chasing those goods anymore because he's gotten them now it's time for him to sit back and chill but just when he's ready to sit back and chill god's letting him know his time is up and that those things he spent his life chasing those like clout for so many people but like money for most people uh it's time's up now that you finally achieved them it doesn't matter anymore because you've lost the ability to relax and enjoy them just when you were thinking and going and sitting down and focus on relaxing and getting right with god now that you have time to get right with god that you can eat, drink, and be merry until time's up. Verse 21. So is he who lays up his treasure, lays up treasure for himself, and is not rich toward God. So Jesus is saying that's the same way it looks to God when you put off, when we put off valuing what it is God seeks from us at the time while we sit, chill, and relax and live a daily life of not chasing clout, chasing money chasing what and whoever else um, putting those things first if we seek those earlier sooner rather than later we it seems to me what jesus is saying that's laying up the treasure for ourselves with god rather than choosing the treasure that when there's nothing else on our agenda to do verse 22 then he said to his disciples therefore i say to you do not worry about your life what you leave, nor about your body, nor about the body, what you will put on. So, I think what Jesus is saying here contradicts what so many religions get hung up on, especially about people like myself, transgender people, people under the umbrella, about clothes, focusing on well, men supposed to wear males' clothes, not dresses. Generally, that's at the heart of the hate. Um, They'll overlook women wearing pants, shorts. They'll overlook uh, women being together. But they can't overlook or they have a hard time for whatever reason. Because again, what Jesus says about it is right here in red in the Bible. Yet gets ignored, uh, even changed or left out of so many so-called Christian teachings. Yet it doesn't get embraced and taught. Uh, whereas the other things that do are full of hate toward people like myself do get embraced why would people embrace the hate so freely but hide the love it's really really crazy that that's what so many so-called god-loving people christian folks do yet it's right there um and it does happen i can tell you firsthand i've seen it happen with churches firsthand i've had it happen with religious folks firsthand even in my own family firsthand more than once many different times so um trust me it happens and it's a shame that it happens under the veil of christianity but it's veils christianity to even act that way to be that way because it's not truly what jesus teaches at all jesus again is emphasizing here that that's how our life is about it's not what you're eating it's not what you put on your body so why do so many religions get hung up on dietary restrictions or clothing restrictions? Verse 23, 
Life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. Again, why get hung up on, don't eat this, don't eat that? Even if it's right there, this is why. Because it's right there in black and white in other parts of the Bible, not in what Christ has to say. Again, separating Christianity from religion, separating Christianity from all the other parts of the Bible, the tithe of the Bible, the Christian part, different from the rest of the Bible. Some parts of the Bible say, don't eat pork, for instance. Other parts of the Bible say, eat anything that moves. Other parts of the Bible say, only eat a vegetarian diet. And I'm paraphrasing on that in modern plain English, but that's what they all say. And if you can read along with me, one of the times we read about them um, in the different places in the Bible, if you mention that way, or if you like, go to the Naked Truth um, Index and go to the top 10 there in the Naked Truth Index, and you can read along with me there. It's in a short 10 or 15 minute, I think, um, video where we go through the top 10 things churches won't even talk about or discuss. And that's one of them. How the dietary rules changed again and again and again throughout the same Bible. Um, so which one do you hold on to as the truth? What do you believe? Jesus is letting us Christians know here, life is more than food. The body is more than clothing. So don't get hung up on what it is you should eat and shouldn't eat. Don't get hung up on what it is you should wear like tassels on your clothes, like we've read about, is a requirement for people to wear on all their clothes, tassels. How many people do you see wearing tassels now? They're not. They're not being faithful to the commandments in the Bible, black and white, right there in the Old Testament. So um, be, they have to be consistent. If you're a Bible thumper and believe everything from, from Genesis to Revelation is your reality now, where are your tassels? If you don't have the tassels on, why do you think it's okay? to not follow that commandment in the Bible. Eventually, you'll get to the point where, if you're a Christian, what Christ has to say is supposed to be your gospel, your truth. So if Christ says it's okay, then it's okay. If Christ didn't say it, that's okay too. But don't say it's Christianity. It's not. Verse 24. Consider the ravens, so that, for they neither sow nor reap, which have neither storehouse nor barn. And God feeds them of how much more value are you than the birds. So again, Jesus is calling to our attention the birds. For it was the um, the doves, the pigeons. They're, now it's even the ravens. How They're wild. They don't have a house they have to maintain, keep insurance on, keep the lawn mowed, keep the grass greener than the neighbors. They don't have any of that to deal with. And yet they even get fed by God Almighty. They even have value in the big picture to God Almighty. Verse 25, and which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? Jesus is saying, worry as much as you want. You can't make yourself go from five foot four to six foot one. You can worry all you want to. You can't make it happen. That's out of your hands. Some things in this life and in this world are out of our hands. Verse 26, if you then are not able to do the least, why are you anxious for the rest? You're not even, a, even able to add one cubit, one um, inch to your height, one more day to your existence. What makes you so concerned with all these other things that are out of your hands, that are out of your control? Verse 25, in which you by worrying can add, I'm sorry, read that one, verse 26. If you then are not able to do the least, why are you anxious for the rest? So if the small things are out of your control, what makes you think um, the big picture's in your control? Verse 27, consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil, they neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Jesus is saying, look at even the flowers, how beautiful they are. They're beautiful all on their own without, any, without having to work to be that way. Jesus is saying, consider that next to all the posh, lavish, fabulous things that Solomon possessed. And we've gone over his story in our other daily readings of how wealthy he was, abundantly wealthy, even with people giving more wealth to him um, abundantly. 
Um, and Jesus is saying here, even with all that worldly wealth and appeal, it doesn't even compare to the beauty of the, of nature in the lilies. Verse 28, if then God so clothes the grass, which today is in the field, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? Jesus is saying, if God makes even the plants of the fields, the lilies of the fields, as beautiful as they are, just to be beautiful, just to be observed as beautiful, just as science tells us, we can change the outlook and outcome of things in a very real, real way, in a sort of alternative universe sort of way, just by noticing them, just by paying our attention to those details in life. We can change the outcome and trajectory of those different things, <clears throat> excuse me, in those different existences. That's a whole different reading, so we won't go too much further into that. But um, in that same way, Jesus is letting us know that seems, it seems to me he's letting us know that's how our faith works as well, that we're accounted for in the big picture of things. Our expectations are seen to in God's big plan of things. If we're maintained, if we're thought of, if we consider God in the big picture of things ourselves. Verse 29, and do not seek what you should eat or what you should drink, nor have an anxious mind. So again, Jesus is saying, don't make that the focus of our things, of our walk. What is righteous to eat? What's righteous to drink? What's righteous to wear? Verse 30, for all these things the nations of the world seek after. And your Father knows that you need these things. So um, the clothing requirements of the culture, the clothing of a nation, the cultural foods of a nation, the cultural norms of a nation are already designed, already set in order by the different nature, nations. Those are the things the nations seek after. Jesus is saying our thoughts as Christians are higher and above and beyond all of those sorts of things. That's not where our focus should be. Verse 31, but seek the kingdom of God and all these things shall be added to you. Jesus is saying that's where our focus should be. That's where we should be looking to, the kingdom of God. And in seeking the kingdom of God and making that our focus, it's going to be given to us. By making that our X marks the spot on the map, that that's what we're going to achieve. That's what we're going to make it to. That's where our prize will be. Verse 32, do not fear the little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So Jesus is saying it's God's good pleasure. It feels makes God feel good to do right by us, to give us even the kingdom. Um, it doesn't always feel that way. You know, the Lord, if God willing, is listening in. It doesn't always feel like the kingdom is ours for the taking, like the world is at our fingertips at all. And yet Jesus is telling us that that is the case, that it's God's good pleasure to manifest the king, even the kingdom for us. So I suppose that's realized in different uh, expressions of the kingdom in our uh, existences, because it doesn't always feel that way at all. Verse 33, sell what you have and give alms, provide yourselves money bags which do not grow old, a treasure in heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches nor moth destroys. So Jesus is saying that our treasures should not be the tangibles, I suppose the non-fungibles, things that you can't put your hands on, things that you can't reach out and touch. There, uh, That's what our treasures should actually be, and the things that are treasured on earth should be uh, sold. We should not hold on to these things at all, but be willing to and even actively seek in letting go of the things in our lives. I suppose some of the billionaires are doing, um, living up to this righteously, whether they claim to be or not. And the fact that they say they're giving away their um, uh, wealth when they die in their wills um, and so forth. Um, they're not holding on to it. I suppose the truly righteous thing would be is if those same billionaires, instead of waiting till they die to do it, 
do it right now. Do it in the form of unformal corporations. Do it in their way of giving back to um, the masses. And they could even number them if they wanted to. Uh, of the people who didn't benefit from that wealth that they've enjoyed so much so to the point that they can give it away when they die. It seems to me that would be the most righteous thing to do. Uh, uh, if you go by the Bible, though, depending on the parts of the Bible we call the parts of the Bible, say it's okay to even enslave people, even though the same people who were told it's okay to enslave people were enslaved themselves. Say it's okay to enslave people and pass those same people down as property to other people. So all of the Bible is not Christianity, just so you understand. Um, and not all of the Bible is good or righteous or even godly. Though it's all in the Bible, it isn't all righteous. It just isn't. And, but believe what you want. Um, so anyway, verse 33. Sell what you have, and make your palms, or buy yourselves money bags, which do not grow old, or treasure in heaven that does not fail. Where no thief approaches, nor moth destroys. So Jesus is saying, and seeing for those unseen treasures doing uh, good and righteous things just to do good and righteous things, doing good for goodness sake, or being good for goodness sake, is storing up treasures in God's eyes in the divine big grand scheme of things. In that sense, and in that sense, it's uh, untouchable, but it's also, um, uh, it's intangible and it's untouchable. It's not going to rot. It's not going to decay. It's going to be laid up for all times. Um, and I suppose at that same judgment day or last day. Um, verse 34, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So Jesus is making it clear that whatever it is you put your heart to uh, and hold dear to your heart, that's where your treasure actually is. Uh, bump what you have to say. Let's see where you're putting your money at, where your real heart and effort and elbow and energy are going to. And that's where your heart truly is. Verse 35, let your ways be greater than your lamps burning. So Jesus is saying, uh, don't just be about the talk, be about the walk. Don't just say what you know is good. Know what's actually righteous and good and do it. Keep it. Do it. That's what... Um, is um, going to be the lamp actually burning, not having the oil. It's going to be having the oil and letting the lamp burn with it. Verse 36, And you yourselves be like men who wait for the master when he will return from the wedding, that when he comes and knocks, they may open him immediately. So Jesus is saying, be doing what it is we know to be doing. Uh, do be doing what we know to be doing is righteous. Um, when that time comes, be in the middle of being righteous and doing righteous, not just thumping the Bible, making a noise with it, using the Bible, opening up and making a joyful noise with it of what it is that's actually righteous to be doing. Um, in that time, when that last day comes, verse 37, blessed are those servants whom the master, when he comes, will find watching. Assuredly, I say to you that he will gird himself and have them sit down and eat and will come and serve them. So Jesus is saying, and when that moment of truth comes, if we're doing the actual righteous things uh, in that moment, then a actual righteous moment will um, be what we reap. That's what we'll um, have in that moment, a moment of joy uh, in that judgment day, if you think of it that way. Verse 38, and if he should come in the second watch or come in the third watch and find them so, blessed are those servants. So in Jesus' parable here, if it happens in the middle of the night, if it's a moment of surprise when you wake up on the other side, not say like in a moment where you think you could lose your life uh, when you've been kidnapped, for instance, or if you're in some sort of dangerous occupation and you could fall off that beam and die um, or in a plane that's turbulent and going down so no not in those moments where you know you're about to pass away or very well could 
to know at a moment where you're blissfully unaware and don't even realize that the Grim Reaper, in some people's case, is at hand. Um, not the one who's going to reward you good for the good things you've accomplished, but the one who's going to reward you evil for the evil you have indeed accomplished. Verse 39, but know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief was, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. So Jesus is making it clear there that um, better than an alarm system would be an alarm that let you know before the alarm even went off. Someone that clued you in that, hey, you don't, whether your alarm is on or off, someone is going to go and break into your house on such and such a day, such and such a time. Um, you just do it what you will, but just so you know, that's when it's going to happen. If you had that sort of warning, you wouldn't need an alarm system. You wouldn't need a neighborhood neighborhood watch. You would just be ready in that moment, ready to, if you want to interpret Christianity one way, give up all your goods to the person who's taking them from you. You could interpret it that way, or if you interpreted it in the American way, you'd be armed with your um. If you're a one church with your sword, or if you're another church with your guns, that's how you take it and deal with it. Um, again, but what you would do is deal with it most likely. You would treat that day differently, knowing that on that day, your house is going to be broken into. Um, you would treat your security very differently. Verse 40, therefore you also be ready for the Son of Man is coming. At an hour you do not expect. So Jesus is saying, so if you value your uh, Christian walk in plain English, then um, know that that day is coming. So be ready. Walk the walk. Don't just talk the talk. And do it at all times. So that if it does come on you unexpectedly in the middle of your sleep, for instance, or form of a heart attack or something, then be ready and know that um, that moment of truth has come upon you. Uh, so hopefully you're right. You're right with God in that moment. Verse 41. And Peter said to him, Lord, do you speak this parable to, uh, only to us or to all people? So um, one of his disciples, Peter, John by name, was wondering, are you just talking to us or do you mean to anybody? Verse 42. And the Lord said, Who then is that faithful and wise steward whom his master will make ruler over his household? to give them their portion of food in due season. So Jesus could have answered it easy and say, I'm just talking to you. If he meant that, he didn't mean that. So uh, he's clearly, yes, he is talking to the disciples. I think specifically the least parts of it was the part that I mentioned, the ones that made it into the Bible as gospel books. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, for instance, by name. Even though they aren't specifically some of necessarily some of the disciples mentioned by name in Jesus' accounts here in the Gospels, but those are the ones that did make it into the Gospels. Um, so they're saying, is he just talking to us? Jesus is answering them. Um, it's any any of us. It's not just the 12 the disciples. It's not just the others besides the 12 who were present at that time. It's us in modern times in 2023 and beyond who hear the Gospels and do it, who hear the Gospels and keep it. Jesus is speaking these red letters to all of us specifically, and that that's who Jesus will be coming to in that moment of truth, wondering, have you been faithful to it, and have you in that moment of truth, that judgment day, been faithful to it, what it is, in that season, when Jesus finds you and comes to you and asks you, verse 43, Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. So Jesus is saying when that judgment day comes, if you're faithful in saying and doing, then God bless you. You're going to be happy in that judgment day. Verse 44, truly I say to you that he will make him ruler over all that he has. So Jesus is saying some people in that moment, that last day moment, will be happy because Jesus is going to recognize our part, our willingness, in the big picture of things and in hearing and heeding and doing what it is he says to do. And so that moment of truth will be a happy one. Verse 45, but if that servant says in his heart, 
Her master Zelanius um, begins to beat male and female servants to eat and drink and be drunk. So Jesus is saying there's a choice though, even to those um, dearly um, responsible for handling the truth and distributing it, that there's a choice. You could choose to say and say, you know what? It's been almost 2,000 years and Jesus ain't came back yet. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do like the man in the parable. I'm going to eat, drink, and be merry and uh, just have a good time. It's a choice. You can choose to do that. I wouldn't recommend it. Jesus isn't recommending it. Jesus is letting us know in case you don't understand it that he's not recommending it. But here's a parable to understand that if you choose to do that, I don't recommend it. And when that moment of truth comes, you're going to wish you hadn't done it. Uh, because when that time comes, you're going to be um, considered an unbeliever. You're going to be considered unfaithful. You're going to be cast away. And it's going to be a moment of truth. A sudden moment is going to sneak up on you. Verse 47. And that servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself or do according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. So Jesus is saying in that judgment day moment, in that last day moment, you knew what to do. You knew the righteous thing to do and you chose for whatever reason not to do it. Then you're going to be beaten for it. It's going to be harsh and you're going to pay a harsh penalty for it. I think in a Christian walk, it's not just that last day that you face the music in those sort of moments. I think on the righteous path, it's along the way when you've done the wrong thing. The fruit of it springs up and you have to deal with it. And sometimes it takes many lashings to get it right and get the situation right uh, before you can move on. Uh, but in some cases, you don't get another chance to do it. When you wake up on the other side, then it's that moment of truth. And uh, it's a harsh judgment. Verse 48, but he who did not know yet committed things deserving of stripes shall be beaten with few. For everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. And to whom much has been committed, of him they will ask for more. So Jesus is saying, uh, if in that case, if you've done the wrong thing and didn't realize you were doing the wrong thing, then you're still going to have to pay a price for it. It just won't be the same judgment. It won't be as harsh as if you knowingly did the wrong thing and still chose to do the wrong thing. Verse 49. Same situation. So did the same things. So it's not what you're doing. It's how you do it. If you did the wrong thing and knew you were doing the wrong thing, then expect a harsh judgment. Uh, if you did the wrong thing and didn't know it, expect the judgment. And it's going to be unpleasant. But it's gonna be it's not gonna be as harsh as the one who's out there teaching you that it's the wrong thing and knowing so. Verse 49, I came to send fire on the earth, and I wish it were already kindled. So Jesus is saying his message is one of vision, it's polarizing. Verse 59, but I have a baptism you to be baptized with, and how I am till it is accomplished. So Jesus is saying he's distressed knowing that his mission is one that leads to crucifixion. And if you've read with me before you and you're reading along with me now, you'll see this is the second time at least that I read a passage, a verse, and didn't read every word in it out loud. If it's your first time reading with me, Matthew 12, 37 explains it more what Jesus says about our words and their power and manifesting them and what they can mean in the big picture of things. And so if you consider that, you'll consider how saying that you are distressed will manifest itself to you in verse 50, um, just as an understanding that uh, why I'm reading them as I'm reading them. Uh, verse 51. Do you suppose that I came to give peace on earth? I tell you, not at all, but rather division. So again, Jesus is letting us know that Christianity is polarizing. What he has to say isn't going to bring unity. It's going to bring actually division. And I think I've lived it. I've seen it. 
It's people who thump a Bible and don't bother to actually see what's in it, thinking they're doing and being righteous. And you see it every day. Um, but it's anything but righteous. It's ignoring what Jesus actually said and then calling itself Christianity. It's monstrous. Um, verse 52, from now on, five and one house will be divided, three against two and two against three. So Jesus is that lightning rod, and it's right here in red ink. So it really should be clear if someone is Christian, it should be something Christ said. And if Christ didn't say it, then why would you let that supersede what Christ actually says? Verse 53, father will be divided against son and son against father. Mother against daughter and daughter against mother. Mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law. And daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. So Jesus is saying straight up division is what's going to be expected with Christianity, not unity. And again, it's going to be based on people thinking their religion is Christianity. It's not. Verse 54. Then he also said to the multitudes, Whenever you see a cloud rising out of the west, immediately you say, a shower is coming. And so it is. So Jesus is saying you're able to forecast the weather depending on which way, which way the clouds move. Verse 55, and when you see the south wind blow, you say, there will be hot weather. And there is. So same thing with heat. Um, and being from Florida, you can see that every year with the hurricane season. And having lived through some hurricanes, you can see the wind moving and the storm moving in the clouds and the bands. It's pretty terrifying sometimes. And Jesus is saying similarly, you can tell which way the heat is moving if it's blowing from the south. Verse 55. And when you see, presumably because of the equator, verse 55, and when you see the south wind blow, you say there will be hot weather, and there is. Verse 56, hypocrites, you can discern the face of the sky and of the earth, but how is it you do not discern this time? So Jesus is saying you can forecast the weather, but you can't look at what's right here on earth. You have the Savior walking with you, fulfilling the Old Testament scriptures that you're supposedly ministers of. And yet, you're not able to see that. You're looking right past that. You can't see the forest for the trees. Verse 57, yes, and why even of yourselves do you not judge what is right? So Jesus is saying, even among each other, you're not able to form right judgment and do actually what's righteous. Verse 58, when you go with your adversary to the magistrate, make every effort along the way to settle with him. With him lest he drag you to the judge. The judge deliver you to the officer, and the officer throw you into prison. Into prison. So Jesus is saying there, when it comes to other civil matters, be willing to, uh, to settle. Don't be dogged about your position, because as you've seen in modern times, like Mama used to say, being dead right doesn't do you much good. So, um, some people, like George Floyd, are dead and didn't even do, even do anything wrong, like so many others, are completely dead without having, without having done anything wrong. Um, so what good would it do you to be right and be dead? Uh, why not go ahead and not in the case of George Floyd, obviously, in other cases of settling civil matters, why not take it to court? Um, with the settlement rather than let it go to a judgment. Um, and I've been in those cases also. Verse 59, I tell you, you shall not depart from there till you've paid the very last mite. So you do better financially, generally speaking, to settle something out of court rather than incur the costs included, the court costs and lawyers' fees and filing fees and motions, and all of that, serving fees, and you might do better to just go ahead and settle a matter out of court, rather than um, let something go to a judgment that makes you end up broke, because you may still lose, even if you are in the right, that's just the way the systems are set up, unfortunately, 
that was the last person's chapter, so that's where we'll end this reading. As always, thank you for joining me for the Naked Truth. I hope it's a blessing for you, and thanks for joining me again. Stay safe. I love you, and I'll see you next time. God bless you. Peace be with you.